Well, good morning. If you've been at Northwake for any length of time, you have watched me trot out any variety of props and object lessons in an attempt to teach you the Word of God. Over the course of the years, I have broken mirrors, held babies, paraded bowls full of grapes, treasure boxes, completely blacked out the auditorium, thrown seed, thrown money, passed around potatoes, weighed things, stacked things up, and knocked things down, and threatened people with a two-by-four with the word aha written on it. Um, there, There was one time when it's rumored that I wore an elf suit. One of my more humiliating object lessons, to be sure. But even the elf suit pales in comparison to what God asked the prophets to do, to enact the message that they were bringing to God's people. For instance, the prophet Isaiah was instructed by God and obeyed him and walked around naked or the next best thing to it for about three years. It's in your Bible. (laughs) Jeremiah walked about wearing a yoke such as a pair of oxen would wear in the streets to symbolize his people's submission and servitude to foreign powers. But Ezekiel... One of the two books that I hope we will get through today um, is probably the king of prophetic reenactment. There are about a dozen different prophetic reenactments that he does in this book. Um, Things like lying bound daily on his side for more than a year in the streets of Jerusalem, digging holes in the walls of houses trembling when he eats, not mourning the death of his wife, shaving his head and distributing the hair symbolically. Um, He saw images of strange creatures and things with wheels, and he heard sounds of water. He cooked meals using feces for fuel. Um, He did all these things, along with some of the most graphic, powerful teaching you will ever read so that God's people then and we now would get it. That we wouldn't just hear the message of the prophets and say, that's so nice and fascinating and I wonder what the Hebrew means. But that we would get it and it would break us and we would not be the same after we heard their message. And so today we have the awesome, holy, sacred privilege of hearing two of those great prophetic voices call to us from history with messages that are almost unbearably powerful. And I would suggest that we bow low now and pray that God in His mercy would allow us to get it today. Would you bow with me? Lord, have mercy on us. We are hard of hearing and hard of heart. We listen, but we do not hear. We look, but we do not see. We understand and we do not obey. God, have mercy on us today. 
Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God and Savior of us all, have mercy upon us. May we hear and see and obey your holy word today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, the prophet Ezekiel fits into the same time frame we've been talking about. During that captivity, when the southern kingdom fell about 5-600 B.C., um, to the Babylonians, and they were an oppressed, suffering people. Ezekiel comes onto the scene, and he's commissioned by God in this way. Son of man, which is what God calls Ezekiel throughout the book. Son of man, I'm sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I'm sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid. Though briars and thorns are all around you and you live among scorpions, do not be afraid of what they say or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious house. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. And so Ezekiel is sent, as you picked up in his commission, to a rebellious, stubborn, obstinate people that are just as likely not to listen to him as they are. And his commission is as a watchman. In chapter 3, God says, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning for me. When I say to a wicked man, you will surely die. And you, Ezekiel, do not warn him or speak out to dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life. That wicked man will die for his sin. And I will hold you accountable for his blood. And now I think you understand some of the reasons why it was so important for Ezekiel that the people got it. Because lives were at stake and he was being held accountable for it. Now, the book of Ezekiel unfolds a lot like Isaiah and Jeremiah, some of the other major prophets. There's an opening series of chapters that deal with a judgment on God's own people for their rebellion. Then there's a section that's a prophecy against the nations. And then the book closes with a great message of hope for God's wayward people. That's where the section that Mitzi read earlier, the dry bones passage, it's one of those great passages of hope that's at the back end of the book of Ezekiel. But the book starts with this absolutely stunning, bordering on bizarre vision of the glory of God that's given to Ezekiel. In chapter 1 of your Bibles, it says, Ezekiel says, I looked and I saw a windstorm. He's seeing a vision, a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground besides each creature with its four faces. 
This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like chrysolite, and all four looked alike, and each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. And as they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not turn about as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. And then there came a voice from above the expanse, over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. And above the expanse, over their heads, was what looked like a throne of sapphire. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire. And brilliant light surrounded him like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. And this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down. If you've read the back end of your Bible, the book of Revelation, this language sounds similar, doesn't it? He's been given a vision of the glory of God and My suggestion to us this morning is that what this needs to do rather than us figure out what this means, what the wheels represent and the eyes, and helpful though that might be, that our our great concern this morning is how does this shape our worship? If when we gather on Sunday morning and you come in through those doors and we as God's people come before God, Ezekiel's God, what does it mean? that we come before this God. I think Ezekiel's response is instructive for us. He fell face down when he caught a vision of who the God was he was about to encounter. And so, you know, coming in and slapping hands and grabbing coffee and being late so you can make sure you get your coffee and you know, just yucking it up and having a great time. Somehow that seems incompatible to me with what Ezekiel encounters. Look, I'm not banning coffee from the worship center, all right? Relax. But I'm just saying, can you sashay casually, unprepared, late into the presence of this God and have it seem appropriate? I love the quote from Annie Dillard. She says, It is madness to wear ladies' hats and ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares, they should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. See, when we meet on Sundays, we worship Ezekiel's God. All his glory. And that is a sobering thought. And it would serve us well from time to time before we gather to read Ezekiel 1 or the early chapters in Revelation, chapter 1 or 4 or 5 or 7 or one of those chapters that shows us the throne of God and just fix in our mind what we are about to do together. 
But Ezekiel does show us another side of God's glory. He shows us the shepherd side in an amazing passage at the back end of Ezekiel in chapter 34. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Speaking of the people who are shepherding his people, he says, I'm against the shepherds. And I'll hold them accountable for my flock. I'll remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves on the flock. I'll rescue my flock from their mouths. And it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel and the ravines and in all the settlements and land. I will tend them in a good pasture. The mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land. And there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost, bring back the strays, bind up the injured, strengthen the weak. He says, I will shepherd that flock with justice. Don't you want to draw near to that kind of God? To cast your cares on that kind of God? A God who searches and looks after and rescues and is faithful and keeps his promises and leads and tends to our sufferings and strengthens us when we're weak? Interestingly, this is who God says he is. And this passage is what informs Jesus' instruction and description of himself in chapter 10 of the book of John in the New Testament. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. That's a divine claim. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen, and I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. More imagery from this book. Ezekiel um, invites us to draw near to the shepherd God. And trust Him. So on the one hand, He shows us a God who's to be feared and revered. And on the other hand, He shows us a God who cares for us and rescues us, who's our shepherd, in whom we can trust our greatest fears and sufferings. You know, Ezekiel has a refrain that God puts on His lips more than 50 times in this book. It's this phrase, And you will know that I am the Lord. And they will know that I am the Lord, and you will know that I am the Lord. God wants us to know him in his glory, in his awe, in his jaw-dropping wonder, and he wants us to know him in his compassion and his rescuing role as our shepherd. God wants us to know him. And so Ezekiel paints this amazing portrait of God right out of the blocks in chapter 1. And out of that, he also shows us the depths of our sin in ways that are graphic. Um, Listen to some of the language that is used about the sin of God's people from chapter 16 of the book of Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, Son of man, confront Jerusalem 
with her detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. His city represents his people. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, on the day you were born, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised, God says. But then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you and I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments and I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey, and olive oil. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. And he he paints this beautiful picture of the redemptive love of God for an undeserving people, just like us. But, he goes on to say, but you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute, a whore. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. Such things should not happen, nor should they ever occur. You also took the fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of my gold and silver, and you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes to put on them and you offered my oil and incense before them. Also the food I provided for you, fine flour, olive oil and honey I gave you to eat. You offered that food as fragrant incense before them. That is what happened, declares the sovereign Lord. And you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food to the idols. Was your prostitution not enough? You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to the idols. In your detestable practices, in your prostitutions, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, kicking about in your blood. You engaged in prostitution with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, and provoked me to anger with your increasing promiscuity. You adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. Therefore, you prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Because you poured out your wealth and exposed your nakedness in your promiscuity with your lovers and because of all your detestable idols, 
And because you gave them your children's blood, therefore I am going to gather all your lovers with whom you found pleasure, those you loved as well as those you hated. I will gather them against you from all around and will strip you in front of them and they will see all your nakedness. I will sentence you to the punishment of women who commit adultery and who shed blood. I will bring upon you the blood vengeance of my wrath and jealous anger. Then I will hand you over to your lovers and they will tear down your mounds and destroy your lofty shrines. They will strip you of your clothes and take your fine jewelry and leave you naked and bare. This is how God feels about his people's sin. And their sin sounds very different than ours on the one hand until you start to think about the categories of sin that he's describing. He's describing things like pride and spiritual prostitution. This is not actual prostitution. This is spiritual prostitution to other gods, unfaithfulness, materialistic idolatry, Human sacrifices, forgetting God, trusting relations with pagan nations, trusting in someone or something besides God. Wonder could could these be said of us? Would our sins fit in those categories? Pride? Materialism? Forgetting God? trusting in someone or something other than God? Indeed, with the possible exception of human sacrifice, they sound a lot like us, don't they? And when you live in a nation where we slaughter a million of our unborn children, I wonder if even that one doesn't have some measure of application to us. Do you have a sense for how God sees your sin? Your sins are adulterous acts of unfaithfulness to your beloved. They are betrayal. They are shameful. They are flirtatious, sensual acts with lesser gods gods of stuff or the god of success or the god of self. They are acts that are spiritually pornographic immorality and unfaithfulness. Not just sins of people long ago. That's our sin. That's what God thinks about what we do. And if it's not enough that Ezekiel pours on this graphic language, he also does these prophetic enactments of it. There's some examples in chapter 4. God says to him, The Son of Man, take a clay tablet and put it in front of you and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. Make a little model of the city, basically, and lay siege to it. Erect siege works against it. Build a ramp up to it. Set up camps against it and put battering rams around it. And then take an iron pan, place it as an iron wall between you and the city and turn your face towards it. So he builds this little model city. And and then he says, it'll be under siege and you'll besiege it. And this will be a sign to the house of Israel. They're about to be besieged by their enemies. 
Then lie on your left side and put the sin of the house of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin for the number of days you lie on your side. I have assigned you the same number of days as the years of their sin. So for 390 days, you'll bear the sin of the house of Israel. After you've finished this, lie down again, this time on your right side, and bear the sin of the house of Judah. I've assigned you 40 days a day for each year. Turn your face towards the siege of Jerusalem and with bared arm prophesy against her. I will tie you up with ropes so that you cannot turn from one side to the other until you have finished the days of your siege. So he's laying on his side, goes out into the street every day with his little model and sets it up and then lays on his side. He does this for over a year. He says, take wheat and barley, Ezekiel, beans and lentils, millet and spelt, and put them in a storage jar and use them to make bread for yourself. You are to eat it during the 390 days you lie on your side. Weigh out 20 shekels of food to eat each day and eat it at set times and measure out a sixth of a hint of water and drink it at set times. Eat the food as you would a barley cake. Bake it in the side of the people using human excrement for fuel. And the Lord said, in this way, the people of Israel will eat defiled food among the nations where I will drive them. Well, Ezekiel can't bear to do this, so God in his mercy lets him upgrade from human excrement to cow manure. And then he says, son of man, I will cut off the supply of food in Jerusalem. The people will eat rationed food in anxiety and drink rationed water in despair, for food and water will be scarce. They will be appalled at the sight of each other and will waste away because of their sin. If nothing else, you ought to come away from those illustrations with a sense of the severity of the consequences of your sin. You know, pictures of years of judgment, some things, hundreds of years of judgment upon God's people. Besieged by their mortal enemies for days on end, eating food cooked over excrement, starvation and despair. Is that really what you want? Is it worth it, what you're chasing? If this is what waits you? Oh, listen to the prophet. Listen today, as from long ago, his words bring the hope of repentance to you. Listen to Ezekiel. He says, house of Israel, I'll judge you. Each one according to his ways, declares the Lord. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you've committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Your sin is far worse than you think. It's adultery and prostitution. It's unfaithfulness. It's immorality. It provokes God to anger and wrath. But in His mercy, He brings us hope, even for the likes of us. He says, repent and live. And the whole back part of the book of Ezekiel is the hope for God's people of restoration of dry bones resurrected to live. And in chapter 37, he says, 
I will deal with you as you deserve because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember the covenant I have made with you in the days of your youth. I will establish my covenant with you and you will know that I am the Lord. And then when I make atonement for you, for all you've done, you'll remember and be ashamed and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the sovereign Lord. And so God holds out the hope that he will make payment. He'll make atonement for our sin. He will do that for us. And we know that that's what Christ did on the cross for us. He made atonement for our sin. So turn to the cross today and taste of the goodness and mercy of God that flows to his people from the cross. Ezekiel calls us to repent. At the close of our service today, you're going to be given a chance to do just that. But Ezekiel mentions another prophet of his day who's a contemporary of his. They they may have been about the same age. They were taken captive, both of them, into Babylon together. They may have known each other. Uh, Maybe in the same small group. I don't know. But his name was Daniel. And Ezekiel speaks of him very highly because of what kind of man Daniel was. Um, Let me get on to this. Daniel shows up um, at the same time as Ezekiel. He fits in the same place. He was one of those taken captive into Babylon. And we meet him in the first chapter when the king ordered the chief of his court officials to bring in some of the Israelites, the captives, from the royal family and nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace, And he was to teach them the language and literature of their captors, of the Babylonians. And the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. And they were to be trained for three years. And then they were to enter the king's service. And among them were some from Judah, Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who are renamed uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But Daniel, it says, resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. So at the beginning of the book, Daniel is established as a man of integrity and great faith and obedience to his God. He would not compromise, even in a small matter such as food. And we're introduced to Daniel, and we're introduced to God. In this way, it says that God caused that official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. And to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. God caused. God gave. God is sovereign in Daniel. He's the sovereign king of men and of nations. And he will come and deliver his people at just the right time. That's the case of Daniel's three friends in chapter 3. I'm going to summarize it for you. You may be familiar with this story. They won't bow down and worship these false gods. And so the king is irate with them and he's going to throw them in a furnace of fire as a capital punishment for their unwillingness to worship 
their gods. He closes this. He threatens them. He says, if you don't worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to this king, O Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into that blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. So the king throws them into the furnace. God does not deliver them from the furnace. They get thrown into it. But while in there, he looks in and he says, I see four men walking around in the, in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. And Nebuchadnezzar approaches the opening and he shouts, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So they come out of the fire and all the officials gather around. They see that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched and there's no smell of fire on them. And Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan Babylonian king, says this, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I, the pagan Babylonian king, decreed that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can save in this way. See, at just the right time, God delivers his people so that the nations see his name exalted in their sight. Same kind of thing in chapter 6. Daniel refuses to comply with the king's edict to pray to no one except the king for 30 days. In fact, he goes to his room three times a day, opens the window, prays to Jerusalem, just like always. And as a result of that, as many of you know, Daniel is thrown into a lion's den. It says, um, after that night spent in the lion's den, the king, King Darius at this point in time, comes near that lion's den and he calls to Daniel in an anguished voice. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. So the king's overjoyed, and he ends up throwing everybody else into the lion's den, whose idea this was. They do not fare quite so well. And then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language throughout the land, may you prosper greatly, he says. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he's the living God. He's a pagan king, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And so again, Daniel is not spared the lion's den. But he is delivered through it at the 11th hour, the 12th hour. 
so that the name of his God will be exalted among the nations. The sovereign rule of God extends to the place of your suffering. It is from that place, by your faithfulness to him, that his name is exalted, and by his deliverance at at that last hour, that his name is exalted among the nations. The mission of God is accomplished most prominently in your life at the point where you are faithful in suffering, waiting and waiting until you're in the fire, till you're in the furnace, until you're in the den for God's deliverance. Will you trust him and not quit but wait for his deliverance. It's been said that Christians are excellent at running the 95-yard dash. We run the 100-yard dash, not the 95. And too many of us quit short of God's great acts of deliverance. We quit on our marriages. We quit on our faith. I have a conversation going on with a guy who's walking away from his faith. And the truth is, he's walking away too soon. I just wonder, what if he waited another day? What if he waited another month? What about next year? What might God do if this man would trust him? God is sovereign in the lives of individuals and over the fate of nations, Daniel says. Daniel can interpret dreams. And so he starts interpreting king's dreams in this book. It's amazing. And he looks ahead four empires down, you know, from Babylon to uh, all the way down to Greece, through Persia and all these different empires, Rome, until he gets to the time of Christ. He looks into the future and makes these amazing prophecies. Chapter 11 of Daniel, it's estimated, has over 100 fulfilled prophecies just in that one chapter. And chapter 9 shows us a prophecy that um, is fairly complicated. It's about years, 77s. It says, No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and build Jerusalem, what we've been talking about, until the anointed one, that's the Messiah, comes, there'll be seven sevens and 62 sevens, and they'll be rebuilt, and all these things, and it says, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. A, a predictive prophecy of the suffering and crucifixion of the Messiah. And you do the dates. You start marking off these years, and this takes us to the life of Christ from 500, 600 years before. They told us when the Christ would come, and it corresponds to the life of Jesus to such an extent that some have worked really carefully with the dates, and they say that this prophecy is fulfilled in the week that Jesus rode into Jerusalem to die 600 years later. God is sovereign over the affairs of men and of nations. And Daniel looks into the future in the very last chapter of his book He actually looks into eternity. And this is what he says in chapter 12. At that time, Michael, one of the princes, the angels that protects God's people, will arise and there will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes 
who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. What does your eternity hold? Daniel, who can predict the future by God's mercy in this amazing way, has said that in eternity, all of mankind is going to be divided into two groups. Jesus said the same thing, two groups. Some will be resurrected to everlasting life, others to everlasting contempt. Daniel says, in my vision at night, what we read earlier, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, that's God, and was led into his presence and he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Will you be numbered amongst one amongst the nations who on that day worship Christ as king? You can choose that today. In this room, at this moment, to bow your knee and confess your sins and trust that Christ is the anointed one of God come to bear your sins. And so now, I'd like for you to bow with me in prayer. As I read from Daniel's great prayer of confession, this is a time to confess our own sins. The worship team comes to lead us in closing song. You may choose to come forward as an expression of your penitence and repentance for your sins. Let's bow together. Daniel says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We haven't listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. Oh, Lord, we and our kings and our princes and our fathers are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor upon us. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the city and the people that bear your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous but because of your great mercy. Oh, Lord, listen. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, hear and act. For your sake, oh, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name.